The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. We think we should be concerned for the well-being of farm animals and those used in experiments. But where should we draw the line? Mosquitoes? Plants? Rivers? In this episode, join philosopher and best-selling author Peter Godfrey Smith as he argues we should draw new limits for our moral consideration. Peter Godfrey Smith is professor in the School of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Sydney, and his main research interests are in philosophy of biology and the philosophy of mind. He is the author of numerous highly acclaimed books, including Other Minds, The Octopus, The Sea, and The Deep Origins of Consciousness. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, ii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. It's now time to welcome Peter Godfrey Smith to Philosophy for Our Times. Here is here's our problem, and I think it's one that's becoming vivid to a lot of people. We've started to think much more seriously about the well-being of many animals who have been treated extremely cruelly, especially in industrial farming and in smaller numbers in biomedical experiments. And some people have resisted this, of course, but I think that is beginning to fade. Watching from afar, I've noticed a tendency for the UK to be ahead in this area, uh, perhaps as a result of broad cultural and philosophical traditions I think this is reflected in the fact that there seems to be much less party political polarisation around this issue here than there is, for example, in Australia, where the conservative side of politics finds itself resisting continually pushes from Labor and the Greens on animal issues. There just seems to be a little bit less of that here. Very recently, this movement has taken off further. Um, in an LSE-led report, on sentience and uh, it's the consequences that we might draw for their treatment in the cases of cephalopods and crustaceans and this is now being reflected in legislation. Now crustaceans and cephalopods I think are the animals for which the evidence for sentience including pain is by far the most strong. Uh, these have gone fairly rapidly from groups where literally any treatment at all is regarded as okay to real consideration and probably before too long at least a fair amount of constraint on how they're handled. I think that's a very good thing. But what next and where does this end? What about insects, plants, 
rivers, computers, there's a hard question of where to stop extending the boundaries of moral consideration. Or as Peter Singer put it many years ago, where to stop expanding the circle. Um, is, for example, a turn towards plant-based diets wholly okay with respect to the welfare side of things? Or is it just much better than what you have in typical meat production? Uh, within plant agriculture, is pesticide use something to regret at least a little when it kills millions of insects? Or is it you know, completely neutral in that respect? Is it a mistake to think of a river or a forest as something that deserves consideration over and above an instrumental kind that involves human use and appreciation. And as we start to replace animals in scientific work with computer models, will there be eventually, or is there already, some reason to wonder if this is wholly unproblematic or another one of those lesser of two evil situations because the computer systems themselves deserve some kind of consideration. So what I want to, what I want to do today is have a look at those issues. Uh, I think this will be a very long conversation, um, not something that can be resolved today. A lot of caution is appropriate, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll have, a, have a go at it. Uh, give one picture on the biological and philosophical side simultaneously. So the plan will be like this, um, a kind of overture, discussion of sentience, a discussion of consideration that doesn't involve sentience. I'm not going to get to the artificial systems part of the talk today because I spent last night thinking about some biological cases and I want to just want to add a bit of material in there. I do want to start in a slightly unusual place with a look at what we're doing when we ask these questions about the boundaries of moral consideration. Philosophers often make a pretty sharp distinction between normative ethics, uh, where we ask what we should do, and meta-ethics, where we ask what are we up to when we spend time working out what we should do. Now, philosophers talking about these particular matters around, I've noticed, around animal ethics, they quite often dive into the normative side and treat the meta-ethical questions as totally separate, but also approach the normative side in a way that includes what I see as an implicit commitment to a particular view on the meta-ethical side, and one that I think has problems, and problems that those, those very philosophers would probably recognize if they were thinking purely about that side of it. Trying to move very fast into some basic issues here. What I have in mind here is largely the question, when we're working through a moral problem of this kind, are we uncovering hidden ethical facts, discovering how things are in this very unusual area, or are we essentially making, creating, choosing in a way not based on discovery? Are values of the kind relevant in this setting created or discovered? Now, that's not a simple divide. A person might say values are created or constructed, but there's only one way to do it that's coherent. That's a kind of neo-Kantian approach to these questions. Or a person might say, um, we're choosing, but we're choosing to follow particular discoveries that were made here, so a particular blend of the two. Um, now, often there seems to be something to be said on both, on both sides. Uh, we create value systems in order to live together as a kind of 
conceptual and social technology, but they feel, once at least they're mature, not at all arbitrary. It feels like you can get things wrong here, and it's hard to make good sense of what it is to get things right or wrong here. Philosophy has a standard menu of options for how our language in this area might be working. Um, sort of moral philosophy textbook options, such as the idea that moral claims might be seen as attempted descriptions, they might be seen as expressions of emotion or sentiment, they might be seen as commands. I think all those standard options are not very good, roughly in the direction of being too simple. Uh, we need a kind of mixed view, but what kind of mixed view? Well, I'll quickly sketch what I think of as a sensible mixed view through a kind of historical or etiological approach, looking at how we got where we are. And this will be, of course, the quickest of sketches. I start from the idea that valuation itself is inescapable. Putting options in order, choosing between them, working out what to do, and at a large scale, working out how to live. The moral or the ethical side of life is part of this practice of evaluation, a part that relates especially, but not only, to social life, to cooperation, group cohesion, um, patterns of behaviour of that kind. Now, it's not only that. I think Jonathan Haidt has quite successfully shown that much, but it is a central part. Eventually in human history, with the development of more elaborate social life and language, Norms that began implicit are made explicit. Norms are made explicit as rules, and they thereby come into contact with reasoning and reflection. They become part of intellectual life with consistency as a constraint. The following, I think, is especially important. The role of parity claims in the justification of moral positions. Um, the kind of reasoning you see when someone says, well, if you say that about X, then you also have to say the same kind of thing about Y, because X and Y are similar in so many respects. The things I'm calling explicit principles here, uh, or that project, probably often began in a theological setting, but, theological, but theology can eventually take a back seat. And once humans can reason, reason tends to get directed on everything. The place we get to at the end of this historical process is something like this. I see our project here still as fundamentally a constructive, creative one, working out how to live, working out how we want to live, what we will value. I think that in the area of morality, free construction is more basic than discovery. I don't think the universe as a whole or at large gives us much guidance here. But on the other side, we are committed to reasonableness, to the social function of moral thinking, to respecting parity arguments, you know, this is comparable to that, so they should be treated similarly, and to making choices that are defensible. A moment ago, I expressed a kind of general frustration and dissatisfaction with the standard views of moral language that you'll find in moral philosophy summaries as descriptions, as commands, as expressions of sentiments. I can now add that I think moral language of the sort that we all live within is almost designed to defy the standard options that you'll have in these initial philosophical treatments. It's almost designed, socially designed to defy them for reasons that make sense, because that language is a tool for and results from 
the bringing of the prescriptive building side of human thought into the realm of explicit formulation, defense, and reasonableness. Uh, Simon Blackburn. Uh, the, the view I'm sketching here owes a lot to Blackburn, uh, especially his book, Ruling Passions. The difference between Blackburn's orientation and my orientation is partly that I see Simon, I can say this because he's not here and he's got no way to defend himself, I see himself as having just too much affection for David Hume. At the end of the day, Hume kind of rules Simon. Uh, Simon is the slave of the Hume. And I'm less of a Humean than that. Uh, for those of you who are sort of uh, familiar with the names, f there's more hair than Hume in, in my picture of things. OK, with all that on the table as a kind of overture, um, here is our problem again re-expressed. As part of our continually evolving relationships with animals, domestic animals, wild animals, ecosystems, also plants, microorganisms, how might we reasonably establish or re-establish boundaries relating to whose well-being is given some weight, some consideration in our decisions? And what kind of well-being uh, matters and what kind of weight might it have? So that's that's a reformulation of, of the project. And I'm going to start with a look at sentience. This is the least controversial feature with respect to moral consideration. Uh, sentience in the sense of subjective experience, but particularly of a kind that involves pleasure and pain, affective or evaluative experience. And many moral views converge to some extent on the importance of this. Here, recently, a shift has come about through broadly empirical considerations rather than philosophical ones. Basically, it looks like there's a lot more sentience around than had been supposed in the animal kingdom. Now, crustaceans and cephalopods are the clear cases where previous views had sort of tacitly assumed none, but the evidence is now quite good. I have in mind especially um, I mean, these two papers really are exemplars for me. On the octopus side, when I wrote Other Minds, a book about octopuses, I said a little bit about octopus pain, but in a pretty cautious way. Since then, this paper by Robin Crook, I think has added a great deal to the case that octopuses can, in some circumstances, feel pain. On the crustacean side, I think Robert Elwood's work is really exemplary here. Um, and in both cases, there's a kind of sophistication and integration in the handling of aversive events by the animals that strongly suggests the presence of something like pain. OK, but in this talk, I want to go on from there and talk about more marginal, ambiguous cases, especially insects, because we are so entangled with them. Now, insects, in evolutionary terms, are basically an offshoot of crustaceans. They're an offshoot of crustaceans that uh, lives mainly on the land. They're here, of course, in vast numbers with great diversity, and our relationship to them has generally been highly antagonistic. Locusts, fleas, and mosquitoes. Uh, normally, there's very little positive to be said about any of those kinds of animals. And mosquito eradication or suppression seems in many contexts to be a very good idea. But do they deserve at least some consideration? And what would it be to give them a little bit of consideration? Might we have at least a little regret 
um, on the behalf of the animals when we engage in mosquito suppression projects. At a big NYU conference uh, a couple of years ago on animal minds, Peter Singer, who was there, was confronted at least twice on this question. Uh, there was a discussion of uh, what was disparagingly called the mosquito rights movement. Uh, and this was taken to be a challenge to Singer. What are you going to say, Singer, about the mosquitoes? And Singer, I think, who always has his, idea, his, his eye on strategic matters, just took it to be a question of such low priority that he didn't want to sort of get seriously engaged with it on this occasion. Reasonable enough, but let, let's, let's have a look. And the first natural question to ask is, can insects feel pain? Um, an old review from the 80s said, probably not, based largely on their apparent unconcern with injury. This is the Eisenman et al. paper on the slide there, where there's a, a surprising contrast between insects and their relatives, crustaceans. Um, another recent paper, in some ways following, more recent paper following up this one, uh, looked at whether bees seek out analgesic chemicals uh, in response to a sort of mildly aversive event, uh, something that you do see in fish and do see in chickens. And the bees, I think to the surprise of the researchers, did not. So there's a case to be made for a kind of, almost a kind of evaluative emptiness uh, with respect to the experiential side of insect life. That seems surprising. Is it then being suggested that insects lost the ability to feel pain from ancestors who might have had it? And that would not be a crazy thing to think. The lives of insects are unusual uh, in relevant ways. They're derived from marine crustaceans, made their way up onto land, and they're entered into a particular kind of life where there's enormous resources for them, but very tough conditions. And um, in many cases, they headed towards a short and highly routinized life, where you've got to do this, then this, then this, in this order, get any of them wrong and it's over. There's a kind of, you know, get it done um, on time basis to their lives. Now, some insects are very smart. Um, um, bees here are the champions. Like the book Metazoa, I'm using some illustrations here by Alberto Rava, who did some great drawings. He's got a way of sort of capturing how animals hold themselves and how they move, I think, Alberto. Um, right, so a short, routinized life. And um, once they're adults, it might seem that insect lives are such that pain might have little point. So for some insects, for example, best case scenario is that you are eaten alive by your own offspring. So Andrew Barron, who's an expert on bees especially, but insects more generally and their brains, he referred to the adult stage of a typical insect to me as a kind of disposable reproductive machine. That's sort of all it is to the animal itself. Um, so it might be a situation where there's a kind of minimal consciousness present in bees, but very much weighted towards the sensory motor side, uh, weighted towards moving around and perceiving, and one that's at least very different in the, on the affect side from other animals, including even their close relatives. Now, suppose that was true. Suppose there was subjective experience in uh, insects without pain or pleasure. Um, 
if this was, this is a, a question being discussed hypothetically a little bit in philosophy right now. What about a conscious animal that had no ability to feel pain or pleasure? Would it deserve some moral consideration, different kinds of moral consideration from an animal with an ordinary uh, evaluative profile? It is possible that insects fit this hypothetical specification. However, having said this, the most recent work seems to be telling against the picture of insects as evaluatively, um, sort of evaluative robots. First, there came along evidence, uh, this is an important pair of papers, for what looked like not so much pain-like states, but mood-like states, often referred to as emotions in the animals. But I think the idea of a mood, a kind of effectively weighted medium-term state that affects how you see everything. Uh, bees, surprisingly, show much more evidence of something like that than they show of acute pain, a kind of a response to immediate injury. Um, secondly, some workers now seem to think that acute pain as well might actually be real in insects but has not yet been revealed, um, partly because people were looking at the wrong stimuli. It might be that animals like bees really do feel the aversiveness of heat and of uh, chemicals, poisons essentially, but sort of bodily damage, they treat their bodies like machine parts with respect to things falling off and bodily damage. Um, so Andrew Barron, who I mentioned earlier, he does think, for example, that standard pesticides that we use uh, every day are probably highly unpleasant for insects. The particular way they disrupt nervous systems, Barron has become, has become convinced, is probably very aversive. So that gets us, I think, fairly quickly to one possible policy initiative. We might decide that insects deserve some consideration, but the scale of their interference with human life is so great that usually a good deal of suppression is justified. And if we thought that, then developing a painless insecticide would be well worth doing as a project, something that we might start trying to do and perhaps eventually mandate when we can. Okay, I used insects as my, um, my case for sentience. But all through my discussion, as my problem case, all through that discussion, I handled sentience itself in a yes or no way. I asked, are they sentient or not? What I think more broadly here is that there's probably a graded presence of sentience. No clear divide or line between animals that have it and animals that don't. Lots of cases, I think, probably are, in a sense, neither yeses nor noes. Now, why believe that? I think one good reason to believe it is space is an evolutionary argument. If you have a tree here of animals at the top who are alive now and branching events in the past, lower on the screen, a succession of evolutionary processes leading to where we are now, then it is likely that there was a gradual process by which we went from some state in the history of animals when no one was sentient to a situation where at least some of these animals at the top are sentient. Evolutionary processes of the kind that are relevant here uh, are usually at least pretty gradual. And I think it is likely that there would have been cases low down on the, sort of in the middle of the screen where the sort of yes-no distinction that we habitually make here gets no purchase. But once we recognize that looking down, it's natural to suspect the same thing is true when we look sideways across the top of the screen at our present relatives rather than our ancestors. 
and once motivated by the history to think in terms of um, cases that are neither clear yeses or noes, true gray area cases, a lot of animals like earthworms and enemies, uh, cases like that, just sort of, in a sense, put themselves forward as a candidate, as candidates for showing the graded presence of subjective experience that we have in animals. Okay, once we're gradualists, once we think the yes or no question should be replaced by a some kind of more graded concept, what about plants? Do plants have a kind of tiny glimmer of the thing that anemones have more of and that octopuses have a lot of? I think that the evidence still tends towards, in a sense, a clear no in the case of plants. I say that with some caution. And within a gradualist view, it's even hard to sort of make fully clear what the no means if you think that this shades off into many varieties of grey. But let's, in, let's accept that and use that thought as a motivation to shift gears and approach some cases differently. Suppose we drop the sentience test and just look at well-being in a way that does not make assumptions about experience and consciousness. Marion Dawkins has for some time argued that we should approach many cases that way, including the hard animal ones. She thinks questions about consciousness in animals are so intractable that we should not make welfare discussions hostage to them. Um, other people, including myself, think that we have to, in a sense. We have to make, uh, we have to work out an answer to the questions, at least provisionally, about sentience or subjective experience. Uh, Dawkins thinks we should rely on uh, distinction between healthy and unhealthy states for an organism and look at what organisms prefer what they want rather than asking what their experience. And the reply that a number of people, including myself, would make is that, well, if that's what we're looking for, then plants will pass that test. They can be healthy or unhealthy. They have ways of sort of behaving in a manner that expresses a preference. They're in the same boat as animals with respect to that kind of test. And the sense that that's not okay, or the sense that it's at least a very radical thing to say, comes from the unavoidability, I would say, of addressing questions about sentience or consciousness. One time I've seen Dawkins uh, express this issue, she's talked as if she thinks it's more or less okay. We should acknowledge the facts about health and preference in any organism in which they exist and make a separate ethical decision about whether we're going to care about um, health and the thwarting or satisfaction of preferences in that animal. Um, rather than what I'm imagining, which is making the, issue, the initial decision about whether we care based on something like uh, these sorts of considerations. So the Dawkins view does not help if the goal that we uh, um, have in mind is working out whether uh, to care at all about particular kinds of animals in a setting where we might instead ask about sentience, where sentience is in a sense in the background guiding what we think. However, we could take a cue from her and just sort of walk forward from her way of looking at things uh, in a and address the problems I'm putting on the table here in a couple of different stages. We might work with sentience where we think that is clearly an issue 
And then we're talking about, I think, animals, essentially, working out where in the animal kingdom sentience or different grades of sentience exists. But we might then um, work with those other factors, health, well-being, um, activity that expresses preferences in other cases where we have reason to believe that sentience is not a relevant consideration. Um, we might decide, do we care about those features even once we've set aside the question of whether there's aversive experience in the organism? Now, if we do that, if we make that move, a kind of a sort of modified version of the Dawkins, the Marion Dawkins view, then we will find that plants are included uh, in the category that results. So will bacteria, in fact, all of cellular life. This is another one of those sudden empirical openings, I think, that's taken place in our picture. All cellular life has some, has a kind of concern with self of a sort that need not involve experience, sentience, but a concern with self that makes it meaningful to ask whether things are going as the organism prefers, whether it's healthy uh, or not, etc. So let's follow that path to the last part of this talk. The idea would be we would establish a kind of minimal but non-zero consideration for all for living systems, for all living systems for which well-being, etc., and expression of preferences make sense. This would not include viruses. Uh, or might not, but would include all cellular life. Um, that kind of consideration might be readily overtaken by sentience considerations, but it wouldn't count for nothing. Where would that lead? Well, the first thing we'd find ourselves encountering if we thought that way is there'd be inevitable conflicts between the projects and the preferences of different kinds of living things, more so than before. Might we then imagine a kind of calculation of the sort that's imagined or at least an ideal within utilitarianism, where we add up and compare pleasures and pains and um, compare well-being, but now in a way that uh, might not be experienced. I'll leave on the table some interesting questions of detail concerning how the quasi-utilitarian calculation might go when um, it's not sentience that we're doing an accounting of, but well-being and preference satisfaction. And in the last couple of minutes, just use some of these questions to look briefly at a case that I've been thinking about, uh, especially since my arrival here. So there's the River Y, photo taken yesterday. Um, this is really a beautiful place. In the case of ecosystems, what kind of consideration might be reasonable to give to them? Or in particular, in the case of a river, what kind of consideration might we give to it? There are some standard bases for concern in the case of ecological systems. There's the instrumental value for people. There's their aesthetic value. Both those things make sense. And there are, I think, quite dubious and tenuous concepts of intrinsic value in ecosystems that people have tried to entertain, but have, I think, not very successfully defended. So one thing I'm interested in is the possibility of extending the kind of already very broad treatment of consideration that I've introduced here to something like the case of rivers. It's not that I think a river is alive. It's striking that the concept of river metabolism is a real scientific concept in people who study rivers. 
if there was some degree of self-regulation in rivers of a kind that made them analogous to sort of living systems in a very loose or broad sense, they might sort of, for that, on that basis, sort of get onto the table in that way. All through this, though, something I want to emphasize in the case of rivers, in the case of simple um, animals, in the case of plants, is the idea that what we are doing here is, I think, making a choice. We are thinking about ways that we might orient ourselves, reorient ourselves to particular parts of the living world and to the living world as a whole. Um, and here I have the spirit of the first part of this talk in mind in particular. People have a tendency in discussions like this to look for the border, as if they're walking through a terrain looking for the line that will separate the beings that deserve consideration from the beings that do not. Um, I think we are more, in a sense, on our own than that. We should look up rather than looking for the line. Sort of look up, look at each other, and make the choice. We're talking here about different possible projects of reorientation where we might reorient our relationships to particular kinds of living things and to the living world in general. I don't think we're being told to by the universe. I don't think it's a situation where some hidden evaluative facts will give us guidance. As I say, I think, in a sense, we're more on our own than that suggests. In the case of sentient beings, there's quite a lot of constraint that we get from parity and continuity with our existing moral commitments. Outside of sentience, in the case of plants, ecosystems, and the like, when we're assuming a secular picture, the situation is much more difficult. Um, more difficult, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't, we shouldn't explore the options. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, ii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers.